I am super excited to talk about the monkeys, you guys. Me too. But where's Ben? He's supposed to be hosting. <sighs> ben. Ben. Mr. Ben Marlin. Mr. Ben Marlin, Mr. Benjamin Marlin, 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 Mr. Ben Marlin, Mr. Benjamin. Okay, okay, I'm here. Jeez, you guys are weirdos. This is Discord and Rhyme. I think it is time for Discord and Rhyme. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme Headquarters, where we sit around and discuss our favorite albums song by song. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. You can find our show notes and full episode archive at our website, discordpod.com. Roll call, Amanda Rogers. Ben Marlin. Rich Bennell. Dan Watkins. And we have a new Patreon donor this week named John. Thank you very much for your generosity. And I should clarify, this is not our John. This is a different John. <laughs> Although we've had a lot of subscribers lately with the same names as our co-hosts. So I, I feel like I should clarify that's not a requirement. <laughs> if you like what you hear and you want to support this podcast with a monthly donation, you can visit patreon.com slash discord pod. And many thanks to everyone who already has. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And now it's time to turn things over to our host this week, Ben Marlin. What album do you have for us today, Ben? I have the album Headquarters by The Monkees. That is such an excellent choice. Why did you pick it? I've loved this album since I discovered it in college, and I'm, I'm a big fan of almost everything The Monkees did, but this is my favorite of theirs. So how did you first get to know it? What's your history with the monkeys? So for people who are my age, which I'll just describe in a numerically non-specific way as young, hip Beyonce, the monkeys have always just been kind of there. Uh, their big hits like I'm a Believer and Daydream Believer and some of their lesser non-believer related hits like Last Train to Clarksville, they've been on the radio since they came out five and a half decades ago. <laughs> They got heavy play on oldies radio in Miami when I was growing up in the early 2010s. <laughs> For my generation, as long as you've been conscious, you knew that the Monkees were a fake band who didn't play their own instruments, and you could probably name some of their members like Davey or Mickey or Peter or Stubby or Skip or Creaky Joe. It wasn't until college that I got deeper into the band, probably sucked in by the CD reissues that came out around that time, which treated each album by this fake band like it was worthy of remastering and annotation and fancy packaging, like it was Frampton Comes Alive or some shit. So I bought some, and it turns out that these albums were worth the fancy pants treatment. The first five Monkees albums are all really fun, varied pop albums and totally worth exploring, and I've been a fan since then. 
Well, for what it's worth, I would much rather listen to the monkeys than Frampton Comes Alive. Yes. <laughs> so, Dan, how about you? What's your monkeys history? Uh, well, you know, I remember seeing the monkeys TV series and reruns on Nickelodeon in the afternoons, and I was really little. Um, and that was pretty much my introduction. We had a copy of the Monkeys Greatest Hits on cassette. It was one of those just like bare cassettes with no case that just kind of rattled along the floorboards of my parents' van. But I remember that being one of the first tapes I actually would choose to listen to when I had no real interest in music otherwise. And for that reason, it's very possible that the monkeys precede the Beatles in my music development. Mm-hmm. Oh, they are the prefab four. They are. <laughs> but, you know, as I started to get more into music, the monkeys quickly fade into the background in lieu of more supposedly culturally important bands. But I never quit liking the singles. And really just in the past 10 years or so, I started to buy the individual albums, which I still don't know the albums themselves as intimately as I probably should, but they're really good. And, uh, you know, they're a band that kind of gets made fun of for being fake or whatever, but who cares? It's the songs are really good. They got good songwriters. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. all right, Rich, what about you? Well, my history with the monkeys is pretty recent as in since we started this show recent. Uh, <laughs> well, my dad was fully caught up in Beatlemania as a kid and he never really spoke ill of the monkeys per se, but I think he was just a little too old to be the target audience. He did, however, love Frampton Comes Alive and loves to talk about how he... uh, We'll have him on for that one. And loves to talk about how he just missed going to the concert at Winterland. But yeah, and Amanda's aware of that. I heard that story at length. (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, I heard the monkeys were better than advertised, but they were just part of the big old jumble of bands I hadn't gotten around to yet until now. (laughs) Well, my history is pretty much the same as Dan's. Uh, I've heard the monkey singles on the radio my whole life. And I also used to watch the reruns of the TV show when I was just a tiny child. I think my dad and I used to watch them together. And I picked up their greatest hits sometime when I was a teenager. But I I, I always kind of figured they were pretty much a singles band and that the albums weren't really necessary. And I've known for years now that that's not true. And I've been meaning to get to the albums. I just haven't really prioritized it. So I still haven't heard a lot of them, but fortunately, Ben picked one that I do own. (laughs) I found headquarters on vinyl in a bargain bin for $3 a couple of years ago. I'm so proud. And the record is old and beat up and has just the perfect amount of crackle on it, which I love for the monkeys, because sometimes you need that. It's the same with my Herman's Hermits record. Sometimes you (laughs) need that record crackle. So what about the monkeys themselves? Where did they come from? How were they fabricated? And why are they so fake? <laughs> Suck it to me. Trolling in the river with a saturated liver And I wish I could forgive her But I do believe she meant it when she told me to forget it And I bet you will forget it when you find me In the morning wet and drowned And the world gets round I'm going down I'm going down Coming up for air is pretty stuff under there I'd like to say I didn't care But I forgot to leave a note And it's a hot that's there Floating soaking wet without a boat And I knew I should have taken off my shoes It's front page news Going down Going down So, picture the Beatles But a thousand times better <laughs> Just kidding, that's Elvis <laughs> <laughs> On brand But though they're frequently dismissed As a rock and roll punchline The monkeys are awesome 
The Monkees were formed in 1965 by producers Bob Raffleson and Burt Schneider, who had the idea of creating a TV show about a goofy band of long hairs like the Beatles without having to pay for an actual band like the Beatles. They signed British actor and singer Davy Jones for the project, and then they put an ad in the paper asking other actors and musicians to audition for parts in the fake TV band. The ad actually attracted a young Stephen Stills, later of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Stephen auditioned for the Monkees, but he didn't get the gig, which is a shame. He could have been the cocaine one. Still, he told his folk singer buddy Peter Tork about the opportunity, and Peter auditioned and got the part. Joining Davy and Peter were guitarist and singer Mike Nesmith and actor and former child star Mickey Dolenz. In September of 1966, the TV show about a fake band named The Monkees premiered on NBC, and it was a huge hit. Not wanting to pass up on an opportunity, the producers, along with music producer Don Kirshner, brought in outside writers and musicians and recorded the first Monkees album. With only a few exceptions, they relegated the four fake band members to lead vocals, and even then it was mostly just two of them doing it, and they were allowed almost no creative input into the music. This wasn't necessarily unheard of in the music business. There's a lot of great music made by artists who only sing and who are singing other people's songs. That's Frank Sinatra. That's the Four Tops and the Four Seasons, the Supremes, the Ronettes, and even new singers like Adili. <laughs> There's absolutely no shame in being just a singer. And the Monkees had a fantastic singer in Mickey Dolenz and a supremely likable one in Davy Jones. The first Monkees album was a huge hit, spending 13 weeks at number one, and suddenly the fake band was a sensation. Monkey Mania was on. They shot out of the gate with several monster hits. Now that was one side of it, but there was also a backlash once people figured out that the Monkees were not everything they claimed to be. Unlike, say, the Four Tops, the band's producers promoted the Monkees as more than just singers. On TV, they seemed to be playing their instruments. The notes on the album made no mention of outside musicians. The public was made to believe that this was a real, creative band playing their own music and presumably writing their own songs because after the Beatles hit, that's just what bands did. So while the Monkees were enormously successful and beloved by millions, they were also scorned by quote-unquote serious rock and roll fans. Almost immediately, the band chafed against this situation. Despite having all the money and acclaim, and more bananas than they had ever dreamed of, they felt like frauds, and they felt like they were wasting their talent by carrying out someone else's vision. They began pushing for more creative input into their music. The producers, who were walking around wearing tuxedos made of stitched together $100 bills, politely questioned the logic of messing with the formula, but the band didn't give up. <laughs> Things came to a head in 1967 when the band visited a record store and discovered that a second Monkees album, More of the Monkees, had been released and they had known nothing about it and hadn't even received complimentary copies from the record label. <laughs> I didn't know they saw it at a record store. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. With Mike and Peter leading the fight, the band members pushed back against their producers and won. Music Svengali Don Kirshner, who had been earning each of the Monkees producers a new house in Beverly Hills every day, whether they wanted a new house every day or not, was actually fired, <laughs> and the band was given permission to go into the studio and flex whatever creative muscles they had. Their first shot was the 1967 B-side, The Girl I Knew Somewhere. 
Now, the A-side to The Girl I Knew Somewhere was A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, a great pop song written by Neil Diamond that deservedly hit number one on the charts. But A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You featured none of the monkeys on instruments and only Davy Jones on vocals. The other three monkeys hadn't even joined him on the trip to New York to record the song. It was the platonic ideal of the monkeys as marionettes being controlled by their producers. But the B-side to the single, The Girl That I Knew Somewhere, is a song written by monkey Michael Nesmith, and it features Mickey on vocals and drums, Michael on supremely confident guitar, Peter on harpsichord, and Davey on tambourine, along with their producer Chip Douglas on bass. And as great a studio creation as A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You was, The Girl That I Knew Somewhere just burns with creative energy and even soul. It's the sound of a band just starting out, plenty green but unmistakably real. with confidence, the band set about recording their third album, Headquarters. They recruited as producer Chip Douglas, the bassist for the Turtles, who had just released their hugely successful Golden Grams commercial, Happy Together. On the album notes for Headquarters, the Monkees made a point to state that they were responsible for all the sounds on the album, with the exception of some bass playing and a few horns and strings played by others but arranged by the band and they wrote or co-wrote eight out of the album's 14 songs. That's a good story, but before we listen, it should be qualified. Producer Chip Douglas had a huge hand in shaping the sound of the album and corralling four guys with undiagnosed attention deficit disorder into staying on task. His steady bass playing kept the music grounded. Douglas has complained in the years since about the challenge of turning Mickey Dolenz's drum clatters into something usable during post-production. The songwriting on this album is really good, but admittedly it's not as sharp as the songs written for their other albums by the professionals. But I like the more ragged and personal feel of these songs. You listen to them and it's clear that they didn't get any help from their parents while writing them, and it's more endearing for it. And even if it took some corralling, or a lot of it, there's no missing that the guys being corralled were musically creative and possessing irrepressible personalities and that they worked with the enthusiasm of men who had a ton to prove. If it's more ragged and less immediately memorable than music written by outside writers, it's better for being its own animal, maybe some mythical animal just one evolutionary step beyond a monkey. The result is a compelling story of creative triumph against the odds. It's also a heck of an enjoyable album to listen to. All right, well, you have set yourself up with a, a lot of a lot of things to prove here. So <laughs> before we get into that, if any of you guys have any questions or feedback about the show, or if you just want to say hi, we are on both Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can send an email to discordpod at gmail.com. 
We would really love to hear from you, especially if you tell us how you heard of the show. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it would be really great if you could leave us a rating and or a review. We especially like nice ones. And we have a plug this week. Our longtime listener, Zach B., has just launched a new zine called Random Old Records about, well, random old interesting records and record collecting in general. If you want to order a copy, visit randomoldrecords.blogspot.com. And for our younger listeners, zines are one of the only ways anyone was able to find interesting underground music before the internet. And it's very cool that we had people like Zach keeping them alive. If you'd like us to plug your project or someone else's, just visit patreon.com slash discordpod for details. And now let's get started. Track one on headquarters is You Told Me. You Told Me is an original by Monkey Mike Nesmith. Mike Nesmith was a Texan, an Air Force vet, a guitarist, a country music nut, and an aspiring songwriter. When he was 13, Mike's mom became a millionaire after she invented liquid paper, which seems like it would be way less useful than dry paper, but it found an audience. (laughs) Well, it was actually an advancement from gas paper at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Before joining the Monkees, Mike had even released a few singles on his own. I won't claim that You Told Me is a brilliant song. Mike had an immediately recognizable country style and some fun idiosyncrasies, but he had to ease into his best hook writing. But still, it's punchy and memorable. And like a lot of the album, the band doesn't glop anything on the arrangement. They keep it simple and snappy. Dig the joyful, creative intro with Mike chiming away on 12-string guitar while Peter plucks muscular banjo, Davey hits his tambourine, and Mickey crashes away on drums. Producer Chip Douglas is on bass, playing the riff from Taxman by the Beatles for reasons I can't figure out. You put it all together and it's real music, real good music, played by guys who were at that moment being ridiculed for being fakes and no talents, and who could almost certainly have made a ton more money smiling big and letting Davy Jones croon on top of some Neil Diamond song. Although, now that I say that, what were they thinking? I would totally have taken the money. (laughs) Is what Davy Jones does crooning, (laughs) necessarily? I think of him as just like, I don't know, squeaking and handing you a flower. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on stuff like I Want to Be Free, I'd I'd call that crooning. Sure. (laughs) Cooing. I don't like the Davy Jones ballads. (laughs) I think this is a great way to open the album, especially the very beginning where it, it feels like they're parodying the beginning of Taxman. Yeah. And then they just went ahead and borrowed the baseline. But I can't tell if that was on purpose or not. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> but otherwise, it's just a really catchy and fun little country rock song with a banjo and everything. Way to go, Michael Nesmith. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's also just a really good signal that while they were to some extent manufactured, all of these guys were musicians, at least to some extent. Um, and Peter Tork played just a ridiculous number of instruments. It's it's startling when you didn't realize they all knew what they were doing. I mean, they weren't Jerry Goffin and Carol King, but that's a really high bar to clear. I think they were, I mean, they were really good at writing songs that worked for them. I like that. I really like that analysis. At building on Taxman and the Beatles, uh, so I actually I don't just hear Taxman in this song. Like the the this kind of re- feels like a little bit like Revolver put into a blender for me. It also kind of reminds me of <laughs> Doctor Robert, uh, and this isn't on. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I think this song is much better than Doctor Robert for what it's worth. Uh, and this isn't on Revolver, <laughs> but it also re- reminds me of If I Needed Someone. Oh yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah and, and I that made me. That. Yeah, and that made me think about the uh, the monkeys and just their relationship to the timeline of the Beatles because I think it's interesting, like how brief the monkeys' heyday was. Uh, Headquarters came out shortly after Revolver, and uh, the entire run of the TV series and the albums that accompanied them came out between Revolver and the White Album. It was it's a really compressed period. I thought I, I had thought that the monkeys were were had kind of ran parallel to the Beatles, but uh, it makes a lot more sense now to me why they were so hated by uh, by Beatles fans because the because the Beatles were reaching their artistic peaks and all of a sudden you have like a Beatles knockoff band and then you hear they don't play their own instruments even though they were by this point. Uh, so uh, I, I guess I get the zeitgeist, but. Uh, Either way, I think it's interesting that they open the album with such like a, a mishmash of Beatles things. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are all good catches. Well, even Don McLean mentioned that in American Pie. The, the the players tried to take the field. The marching band refused to yield. That's the monkeys and the Beatles. Oh, oh. I did not know. That song just keeps on giving. <laughs> I am a goddamn American Pie encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah, I think Mike is my favorite personality of the band. Yeah, he kind of comes off as the the grown up of the group, and he sort of brings a level of maturity to the band, I think. And this isn't one of my favorite Mike songs, but even average Mike is still really good. And I like just the the kind of colorful instrumentation here, like the banjo from Peter is really really good. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. And Mike's really good at wearing a hat. He is. <laughs> it has to be said. He it's is. not even his hat. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. <laughs> What a faker. All right. Track two, then, is called I'll Spend My Life With You. People come and people go, moving fast and moving slow. I'm in a crowd, yet I'm all alone. The road is long, the road is rough. I do believe I've had enough. I'm going to turn around and head for home. And I hope you're there And you still care And if you do I'll spend my life with you I'll Spend My Life With You is a song by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart the songwriting team responsible for the Monkees' first run of smash hits, like Last Train to Clarksville, and the theme from the Monkees, a.k.a. Hey Hey, We're the Monkees. It's a small song sung beautifully by Mickey Dolenz. Mickey Dolenz was born in California. He was an actor and a former child star who played the title character in a TV show called Circus Boy, 
that apparently aired on NBC from 1956 through 1958, unless someone on Wikipedia is totally fucking with us because it doesn't sound like a real thing. <laughs> a goofball without the slightest hint of ambition, Mickey was nonetheless one of the great singers of the 1960s, possessed of a lovely and wide-ranging voice that connected on delicate ballads and driving pop rock songs. Now, the band had previously cut a version of I'll Spend My Life With You in their prefab days with session musicians. It's fine, straight radio pop, and totally competent. People come and people go, moving fast and moving slow. I'm in a crowd and yet I'm all alone. The road is long, the road is rough. I do believe I've had enough. I'm gonna turn around and head for home. It's missing that weird little steel guitar. Yeah. I feel like lining those two up next to each other, you really get the appeal of garage rock. (laughs) (laughs) I like the band's arrangement on Headquarters a lot better. They construct a charming, minimalist track, which is a theme throughout the album. Just, you know, just what it needs to be. Just Davey shaking a tambourine to keep time and Mike and Peter quietly picking their guitars and Peter playing a delicate Celesta solo. Harmonies are stunning, mostly Mickey, doubled just underneath by Peter. Before this, the monkeys had barely been trusted even to harmonize with each other because their producers had been sure that the professionals would do a much better job. But the monkeys knew what they were capable of. And in one song, they show that for as successful as they'd been before this, that success had been riddled with missed opportunities because of their short-sighted producers. What a bunch of dummies. (laughs) Rich, what do you think of this? Oh, it's a nice little song. I like Mickey Dolan's a lot, actually. And uh, I promise I'm not going to just spend this entire episode comparing the Monkees and the Beatles because people (laughs) have been doing that for decades. But uh, I know for a fact that Mickey Dolan's was positioned as sort of the John of the four of them, like the leader. Mm, Uh, But I find that but I find that musically he kind of serves both the John and the Paul role, at least like as as a singer, like because you can hear him on there. He's he's not gritty. He sings in kind of an in, kind of an angelic Paul McCartney voice. If you have to compare them, I think it's interesting that he's kind of the de facto lead singer of the Monkees. I guess he sings on most of their songs, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. On on the lion's share of them, but one thing I like about the Monkees is it doesn't really feel like any of them even want to be the lead singer necessarily (laughs) like one positive element of the band that's underrated i think when you line them up against the beatles is that uh, like these guys were focus grouped from the start to have good chemistry and actually enjoy one another's presence which (laughs) is really endearing to listen to uh throughout their albums now there's no george yeah now i don't i don't know enough about the interpersonal dynamics of the monkeys so i don't know whether or not they had like a lot of um interpersonal drama that at least at the level of the beatles but either way like listening to their albums i get the sense of like a bunch of guys like hanging out and having a good time and uh, mickey dolan's like just being such a smiley faced lead singer of sorts is is a good way to present them i think the drama Mm -hmm. came later like in the reunion years yeah yeah well we're not covering pool it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you don't know what i'm going to recommend at the end of the episode (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh dan what do you think of this 
Uh, this one kind of floats by. I like it. It's pleasant. One thing, though, again, the weird pedal steel tone, the whole album sounds like that, and it it just sounds strange to me. Like, I'm used to the steel guitar sounding kind of lush, and here it's just so dinky sounding, <laughs> and it's all over the place on this album. Hmm. Yeah, I noticed, too, that that guitar tone is a little weird, and I'm, I was wondering if it's an issue of production, or maybe Peter Tork just wasn't really very good at it. <laughs> is it Peter Tork playing? Or is, is it Peter I playing? I think so. I think it's Nesmith. Or is it Nesmith? I maybe I'm wrong. I assumed it was Nesmith, but I could be wrong. Yeah, not sure. Yeah, I, I didn't do my I, homework. The, I did, but I forgot it all. So. <laughs> it's not Davy. We know that. Yeah. <laughs> my hamster ate mine. I mean, I think it is really impressive that they even played their instruments at all on this one. Just yeah. again, given the, given the condensed time frame, like the show had come out the previous fall and, you know, by this point, this was the spring, like, uh, they were already playing their instruments and just, I don't know how mm-hmm. they like cobbled together even any ability in that time frame. Yeah. Well, they already had some coming in, mm-hmm. uh, especially Torque. Like, I think I remember reading that he was in an early version of Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. He definitely been around. I think yeah. Mickey was the main rookie as far mm-hmm. as, and, and I, from my little experience trying to play drums, drums aren't an easy thing to pick up. <laughs> I wouldn't think Especially so. Especially if you're just an actor being thrown a drum set. So mm-hmm. Yeah. And just learning yeah. to play with each other. Like, even if they came in with talent, you know, finding that musical chemistry so quickly is impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And also, I mean, I guess the Monkees are a country band now. <laughs> After There's a lot songs? of country in the Monkees. Yeah, which is fine by me. They're good at it. I think that was Mike Nesmith. He was the country guy, mm-hmm. and he steered them in that direction. Yeah, he's a, he did a good job. I like that sound <laughs> a lot. Well, let's move on to track three, Forget That Girl. No. She's in love <laughs> with him. Oh, yeah. She's in love with him. the keyboard line from (laughs) yeah there's there's a lot you guys have pointed this out as we've discussed this album beforehand a lot of this album is kind of cobbled from other places Mm -hmm. sometimes it's obvious sometimes it's we can't figure out exactly where we've heard these sounds before it's Uh, a mixtape yeah (laughs) (laughs) so the delicate breezy lead vocal on forget that girl is by davy jones davy was a mancunian that's someone from Manchester, England. Drop that fact sometime in conversation and watch people get annoyed and want to punch you in the face. <laughs> Davy was a sometimes singer, but mostly an actor who had received a Tony nomination for his performance in Oliver, and he had actually performed that role on the Ed Sullivan show the same night that the Beatles first appeared. Hmm. Davy had an elfin frame, a megawatt smile, and a voice that, if not particularly robust, was exceptionally genial. All the monkeys had their female fans, but Davy was the heartthrob among heartthrobs, and he was the voice of some of their most enduring hits. Now, Forget That Girl is an original by producer Chip Douglas. It's not a brilliant song, and the monkeys don't do anything particularly amazing with it. It takes its time building up, 
But I do love the end, which we clipped, uh, with Peter's keyboard building up and then the rousing group harmonies coming in rounds. With a few clever touches, they make the song more than it otherwise would have been. I like all the monkey singing voices, except often for Davy Jones. (laughs) Not all the time, uh, but he tends to sound awfully twee, and I feel like he has to put in some effort to not sound completely sappy. (laughs) He's not too bad on this one, though. (laughs) And it's a nice enough song, even though large parts of it sound like Walk On By by Dionne Warwick. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll break down and cry. Yeah, okay, there's that one. (laughs) Very good catch. (laughs) I have many more coming. (laughs) Yeah, I'm hard on Davy Ballads, but this one's not bad. It's it's got its charms. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about it, though. It's it's a nice arrangement, but yeah, it's a good Davy Ballad. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? I think I realized today my biggest problem with David's voice is he just sounds overly trained to me, which makes sense if he was on stage. It's that theater uh, thing. The other yeah. guys kind of sound like your favorite guy down at the bar on karaoke night, <laughs> you know, which I really enjoy. I like that untrained kind of ragged quality, except for Mickey Dolan's, not him so much. Yeah. David Jones early on, on the first couple of albums, I, f- I find him much more cutesy and cloying than this. Like he, he mm-hmm. has this tone, like, I love you, girl. I'll be so true to you. Come hold my hand and we'll go to the soda shop. Oh, <laughs> well, it worked on Marsha Brady. <laughs> <laughs> Can't argue with that. But uh, with, with more um, with more sophisticated songwriting, like on this song, uh, so it actually kind of reminds me of Bell and Sebastian uh, mm. instead of the Beatles for mm. once. I need someone to take some joy in something I do. You need a man who's either rich or losing a screw. You know I love you. Here's the irony. Like I said, uh, J.B. Jones isn't, he was positioned as the Paul, but doesn't really sound much like Paul as a vocalist, but I can definitely like see like the, the influence on, uh, on like twee bands like that, like Bell and Sebastian and similar <laughs> ones uh, in his approach. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally cool. really like Bell and Sebastian, mm-hmm. so that wasn't a diss on them. I find Bell and Sebastian just a little bit too twee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have we analyzed the living daylights out of Forget That Girl? <laughs> Then let's go on to an extremely complicated and deep song, Band Six. (laughs) That was uh, a little too long. Is that great drumming? Got it now, Mickey. There you go. <laughs> I do like the juxtaposition of saying Mickey and then playing the Looney Tunes theme. I'm not oh. sure if they intended that, but <laughs> that's great. This is one of a few brief joke tracks on the album, but even though it's slight, I love it. Basically, it's Mike on guitar and Mickey on drums trying to get the Looney Tunes theme correct. First, they run through it, <laughs> and it's a jumbled mess. But eventually they get it, and when it's clear that they're cooking, Mickey lets out an exuberant whoop. 
whoop, whoop, I don't even know. Band six may not sound like much, but it's the story of making the album in microcosm. When you're aware of what these guys were trying to do, slamming away at their instruments, trying to spontaneously jam on a catchy little melody, failing and slamming some more, and then they finally get it right, you're as thrilled for Mike and Mickey as they were for themselves. Yeah, I love this ridiculous little thing. I'm really glad they put it on the album. That first part, it's clear that no two of them have the same idea of where the downbeat is. (laughs) But then somehow it all just clicks. And that joyful screech is just perfect. I love this. So if we're still doing uh, Beatles comparisons, is this there Tomorrow Never Knows? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes. At least her wild honey pie. (laughs) Yeah, I love dumb stuff like this in records. Uh, It gives it some fun character. I have nothing more to say about it, though. Yeah, you're going to be covering the Who sell out eventually, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's somewhere on the list. There's it, a few of those on there. Yeah, it, yeah, these are right up your alley if that's the case. Um, yeah, yeah, Definitely. band six. I'll, I'll just, I'll just say that in my third year now of producing a podcast, I completely sympathize with the idea of working for hours and hours on something to try to make it sound spontaneous. So. <laughs> so I'm, I, I love having a little nothing like this on the album, but uh, what other things can we find to say about it? Um, I've run out. So I think we'll have a little bit more to say about the next song, though. Track five is You Just May Be the One. Bright as the sun Someone to understand them And you just may be the one You Just May Be The One is another Mike Nesmith original and a compelling one in his galloping country rock style. The monkeys play it with punch and verve and Mike sings the hell out of it within his somewhat limited and endearingly adenoidal range with Mickey singing just behind him filling in the holes. This is actually the one song on the album where it's only the monkeys playing, with Peter playing bass in place of their producer. And what do you know? His bass playing is clever, featuring a number of swooping patterns. I'll have more later on the frustrating tale of Peter Tork, but why didn't he do this more often? What prevented the monkeys bass player, who was a good bass player, from actually playing bass on monkeys records? I guess if you know you're getting a paycheck, whether or not you do the work, and you've got places to go and women to see and drugs to do, it's easy to lose motivation. Yeah, one thing I read about him is that he would he would hold like house parties where he would just walk around naked on acid. So <laughs> that's what he was doing. <laughs> All right. It's a good answer. For reasons I've never figured out, Mike lifted the song's soaring middle eight wholesale from a Jerry Goffin and Carol King song called I Don't Think You Know Me At All, which the band had recorded several times but never released. So that was the monkeys doing I Don't Think You Know Me At All. And now let's clip the bridge from this one. You just may be the one. Yeah. 
I was addressing that to the monkeys, not. <laughs> <laughs> you can be mad at us about it too. Well, that's really disappointing. I I hadn't heard that first clip before, and I, Rich, I thought you were playing like an alternate take of you just maybe the one. Well, I kind of was because it was the monkeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, that is a bummer. Yeah, even in the opening acoustic riff is the same. I don't know why he thought he would get away with it because, yeah, I mean, they worked with Carol King and they, they had recorded that song. They all knew it. I'm not sure why Carol King didn't send her army of lawyers over there to choke a monkey. Uh, but in any case, I'm glad she decided to not abruptly turn the band into a trio because a few <laughs> months later, the band took her song Pleasant Valley Sunday to number three on the Hot 100. And she got richer, which is probably a heartwarming ending to the story. This is almost my favorite song on the album, despite that blatant theft that I didn't know about before. <laughs> There's one song later on that just edges it out. But I think the the rhythm in the in the vocal part in the verses is so interesting and great. And then when it. It, the, the beat kind of speeds up about halfway through the verse. I'm not going to describe this well, but you guys just heard it. Um, the drums pick up just a little bit and the bass is mixed really high in this one, which is fantastic. It gives the whole thing that that real driving rhythm that makes it extremely catchy and fun. I just I this one is really hard for me to describe why I love it so much, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. Now, this is one of Mike's best songs, I think. Um, and it's crazy. I, I didn't know about Peter playing bass on this. And it's maybe the most interesting bass on the entire album. It is. The yeah. bass is so good and on that's this. that's so crazy that they had just a ringer playing the rest of the, the, the album. It's funny. Someone mm -hmm. had to be tripped out of his mind and naked. So <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice economy of songwriting on this one, I think. It's really short. And the, 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 harmony, the part with the harmonies, yeah, that we were just complaining about being stolen. <laughs> uh, in the context of the, uh, of the entire arrangement, I like that they just unleash those harmonies once in the middle. Uh, and then they leave you wanting more instead of like burying you in them for the rest of the song. It kind of reminds me of something that Guided by Voices would do or something. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Dan's going to be covering them soon. <laughs> I, I'm just spoiling all of Dan's episodes today <laughs> all my surprises gone yeah, mike is so economical here he writes less than one song <laughs> don't listen to guided by voices ben <laughs> sometimes you get like a fifth of a song there <laughs> yeah the the economy in the in the writing of this song is a strength i think i mean i would be perfectly happy if it just repeated itself all over again and were twice as long but it's probably better that it isn't yeah and nothing's stopping me from just putting it right back to the beginning and listening again, which I do almost every time. Cool. All right, track six, where I now is called Shades of Grey. Shades of Grey, wherever I go, the more I find out, the less that I know. Black and white. This doesn't sound right. What is this, Ben? <laughs> I suggested this knowing no one would know, no one would recognize it, but. <laughs> It's Billy Joel from his River of Dreams album, which I think was 1993. <laughs> from River of Dreams? Wow. Yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah, Ben has scoured every bargain bin I can think of, and this is, <laughs> that album's in all of them. <laughs> anyway, here's the monkey shades of gray. It was easy then to tell right from wrong. Easy then to tell that dinky steel guitar again. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
Sounds like a cat. <laughs> but today there is no day or night. Today there is no dark or light. Today there is no black or white. Only shades of gray. This one is very clearly, at least to me, written by a professional songwriter rather than by one of the band members. The lyrics are big and portentous and have nothing whatsoever to do with boning. And yes, checking the credits, it was written by the songwriting team Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, two of the most successful songwriters of the rock era, responsible for songs like You've Lost That Loving Feeling, We've Got to Get Out of This Place, and surprisingly, Somewhere Out There from the 1986 animated film An American Tale. If I recall, it was the love theme between Fievel's dad and a block of cheese. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) So Shades of Grey goes slightly against the do-it-yourself theme of the album. But unsurprisingly, given the pedigree of the songwriters, it's lovely. And the band dives in and makes it as much their own as they can. Their arrangement is serious and tasteful, built around a lovely piano line played by Davey and... What I called in my notes, mournful guitar grace notes from Mike, which now just sound dinky. Thanks, guys. Um, (laughs) Davies, tambourine, and maracas are an important part of the arrangement. And they even add little beautiful flourishes of cello and French horn, played by outside musicians, but uh, scored by the band members. The harmonies on the song are some of the best that the band ever recorded. And if Peter's co-lead vocal is flat, eh, I'm glad they let him try. It's still an exquisite recording. Well, I almost always just reflexively start to skip this one as soon as Davy Jones starts singing, because I think it's going to be another sappy Davy Jones ballad. But then I remember, oh, wait, 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 Peter Tork takes over in a little bit. This one gets really good. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a really, really pretty song. And I like the lyrics a lot because it's true. Life gets harder the more you learn about it. You know, it's really easy to see things in black and white when you're young and you have no idea what you're looking at. Yeah, And the, the sound of it really works for me, too. You're right about those harmonies, Ben. I feel like the chorus, like no specific songs, but the chorus sounds like something that Cowsells or the Partridge family might have done, which is not a bad thing. I like both of those guys. <laughs> it's just very of its time in a way that I like a lot. Hey, I think I love them. <laughs> I have the exact same reaction where... The opening makes me brace myself for some drippy schmaltz. (laughs) (laughs) But then Peter comes in and kind of breaks up the saccharine a little bit. Yeah. Uh, It makes it feel a little less like the band isn't serenading Marsha Brady. (laughs) And I think that the arrangement kind of elevates the song because, again, it could easily just turn into just complete schmaltz. But the arrangement is really effective. I like that big dramatic crescendo in the choruses. It really works well with this. All right. Would you, would you say you can't get it off of your mind? <laughs> I would. Okay. Then let's move on to track seven. I can't get her off my mind. I've been standing on the corner all day Trying to think of little things to say Cause she walks by every day about this time This is a cute, catchy song, another contribution from songwriting stalwarts Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, uh, who actually 
had a, a hit of their own in the late 60s called I Wonder What She's Doing Tonight. And it's a great big pop song. I like that song. I didn't know that was them. Yeah. The band here cobbles together a charming arrangement, almost all of it based around Peter's jaunty tack piano line. One of the most welcome surprises on headquarters is the emergence of Peter Tork as an artist. Peter was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Connecticut. He began studying music early, and he became proficient on a number of instruments. Before joining the Monkees, he had been a legit folk musician who played Greenwich Village clubs, which is a nice way of saying that he didn't have a job. But once Don Kirshner decided that Mickey and Davey would be the singers in the Monkees and that nobody would be the instrumentalists, Peter faded into the background. On the first two Monkees albums, he was almost completely missing in action. However, when they collectively decided to become a real band, Peter became a driving force, playing guitar, piano, organ, celesta, banjo, human skeleton, you name it. Sort of the same role that Brian Jones played in the Rolling Stones, making great pop songs even more vivid and colorful by adding novel instrumental textures. Then, two years later, his artistic flame just winked out. There was no Hanukkah miracle for Peter Tork. As for the song, it's not deep or even too substantial, but that's fine. The monkeys play it as a little ray of sunshine flickering out between heavier songs. Dan, what are your thoughts? Oh, Davy and his damn granny music. <laughs> um, it, this is fine, but when it comes to Davy's sort of vaudeville music hall stuff, it's to me clearly second tier to what he would do later with uh, Harry Nielsen pen songs like Cuddly Toy and uh, Daddy Song, which are just way, way, way better than this, I think. So mm -hmm. it's hard for me to kind of view this on its own, but it's fine. <laughs> Rich, how about you? My first thought when I listened to this song was this must be in a Wes Anderson movie somewhere. <laughs> uh, but but I looked up his sound his complete list of soundtracks. He has somehow never used a Monkeys song. Huh. So hmm. Wes Anderson, you obviously listen to the Monkeys. Come on, and you obviously listen to this podcast. Put a Monkey song <laughs> in your movies. So, but um, I I think this one's a good one. I I kind of like every song on this album. Honestly, like Headquarters, I really took to Headquarters, and this is a place where the Monkeys still being relatively untrained really helps the sound. Like I'm imagining them trying to pull off this granny music with session musicians and making it sound like all like uh, proper and polished. And the, I would probably hate it if that were the case. But like having everything sound kind of like off. Uh, that's <laughs> the extra ingredient that this song needs for me to like it a lot. Rich, I'm so glad that, that you're into this album. I like the monkeys a lot. The, the, yeah. If I had listened to them in high school or college, I would have been all about them. But <laughs> alas. Yeah, I want to dislike this, but I can't quite manage it because it like Rich, I like all of the songs on this <laughs> album. Yeah, this definitely crosses the line from sweet into sugary. And Davey is very Davey. That vocal sounds like it ought to be on HR Puff and stuff. <laughs> but it's so sprightly and cute that it wins me over anyway. And it sounds extremely similar to Words of Love by the Mamas and the Papas, which I also like a lot. Oh, yeah. I hear that. Okay, are we done with that one? Yeah. For Pete's sake, shut up, you guys. 
<laughs> All right, track eight is for Pete's sake. For Pete's sake, I'm breaking up date. Wait, I radiate a dump plate and navigate the tube. I don't know what this is, but thanks, Rich. Oops. Ah, it's another song that is not the song I was supposed to be playing. That was for Pete's sake by Pete Rock and CL Smooth from the classic album Mecca and the Soul Brother, which you should all hear. Wait, that wasn't the monkeys? That's where I know it from. Yeah, uh, Davy Jones does have a sick flow. Anyway, let's go on to the monkeys for Pete's sake. For Pete's sake was written by Peter Tork, presumably while naked, uh, along with his buddy Joseph <laughs> Richards, whose clothed or non-clothed status is unknown at this time. Uh, for all his musical talent, Peter wasn't a prolific songwriter, probably because his guitar and pen and paper were way across the room, but his marijuana was right there in front of him. Uh, still, he and Joseph knock it out of the park here. Peter at least to me, also wasn't much of a singer, so he gives the lead vocal to Mickey, who's typically powerful and expressive here. For Pete's sake is a derivative song for sure. It's not melodically brilliant, but it's rousing and it's perfect for the times that it came out. Yes, the lyrics are kind of a hippie greatest hits. If you gave a computer a bong hit, these are the words it would spit out. But the band plays it with <laughs> verve, Peter on snarly guitar, Mike on snazzy organ, and Davy's tambourine adding more to the song's energy than a tambourine should be able to. It's no surprise that the song was chosen as the closing theme to their TV show because it cooks. Uh, how familiar are you guys with the TV show in general? I'm not. Ish. I haven't watched it since, since I was a child, so it's all um they're all on YouTube, and so mm-hmm. I took the chance to watch one uh, from the second season. And Will, our co-host Will, tells us that the second season is way worse than the first. <laughs> I wasn't able to do a thorough survey of the complete catalog, sorry. But I watched the episode I watched was called "The Devil and Peter Torque," and uh, Peter sells his soul to the devil for a harp and the ability to play it. Not for a Formula One race car. Sorry, Ben. Uh, But the funniest part of the episode to me is that uh, the harp instantly raises them to like new heights of success. And they're like fawning headlines about how great the new harp is with the monkeys. And (laughs) uh, The the show has a really like wild and freewheeling sense of humor. And uh, Mm -hmm. apparently one thing that I read about it that's interesting is that it used a lot of filmmaking techniques from the French New Wave that weren't common yet on television. Things like jump cuts and like breaking the fourth wall. So it's it's really funny to me to think that the monkeys tv show in its own way helped usher in the cinematic revolution wow yeah that is interesting i found it on youtube a couple of years ago and i've watched just the odd episode here and there i've seen a couple in the last few days and i noticed that there was a lot of funky cinematography but i didn't realize how new it was yeah and the and also the episode i watched uh, does the joke uh, i've seen it on some other tv shows where like the episode is about peter and peter's name appears more in the opening credits than the other monkeys oh and uh like buffy did that once and i saw it on the state as well like mm-hmm. I, I i mean they were like pioneering jokes yeah. on the show I, I i wouldn't call it a masterpiece obviously but they, it was definitely a lot more interesting than i thought it would be hmm. 
Uh, and for Pete's sake, it's not as good as the Pete Rock and CL Smooth song, but it is one of the best songs on the <laughs> album, I think. Just I don't have a lot to say about it specifically. <laughs> Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it seems kind of sad that Pete wrote this song and named it after himself and actually didn't sing it. But <laughs> I think I think Mickey came up with the title. Oh, really? Is my understanding. Yeah, the, uh, I came across a Peter Tork interview where he said that Mickey just liked to name songs things for no reason sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's just as well because Mickey nails it. And mm-hmm. I really like that guitar figure in the verse. It's it's really groovy, as they would have <laughs> said back then. And the rave up in the chorus is just like straight up nuggets. Like, it's really, really great. And, um, you know, as of this recording, I cannot identify what song I'm hearing in the We Were Born to Love One Another section. And it's been driving me insane. <laughs> I can't sleep at night. So <laughs> listeners, please, if you have any clue what it might be. Email us. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Nuggets, Dan, because I, I give the songs on this album a lot of credit because I, I don't really rank them up against the Beatles necessarily. Uh, it, almost every one of these songs sounds like it would be like the best song on its on, on any disc of Nuggets, basically. Yeah. yeah, the Monkees has always sound more like kind of rootsy to me than the Beatles. Like mm-hmm. there's always more of like a country-ish kind of DNA to it than like because Beatles are like skiffle, which is the purely mm-hmm. English thing. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to me that, yeah, the, the monkeys are so kind of like tied to country and those kind of influences. Yeah. 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 And I keep snapping back to the Beatles just because that's what you do with the monkeys. Yeah. But it's really clear that they were a blend of a whole bunch of other influences. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah the vocal melody in the bridge reminds me of We've Got a Groovy Thing Going by Simon and Garfunkel. But Dan, you're right. There's something else in there, too, and I can't place it either. So thanks for that, because it's driving me crazy, too. <laughs> but overall, though, this is a really, really fun song, even if it isn't the most original thing in the whole world. Because, I mean, I've said this before, not all music needs to be brand new. You know, a lot of times it can just be fun and enjoyable and well-performed, and that is just great. Is there any chance that it's um, people got to be free by the rascals? That's the one that comes to my mind when I think about oh, it. Oh, maybe. I would need to hear that oh, to okay. remember. Uh, it, to me, it's almost Time Won't Let Me, but not quite. Oh. Yeah. It's like at the same kind of timbre to it, but it's not quite that, I don't think. It's something about the high harmony on the line, what we have to be. Just I know there's something else that does that. There's probably a lot of other things that do that. I just can't put my finger on it. The monkeys, confounding listeners for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe Mr. Webster knows. Let's ask him. Okay. Everyone in town knew Mr. Webster. He worked at the bank for 40 years. And each week Mr. Frisbee made his check out for $68 clear. To me, this is one of the less interesting songs on the album, though I hope you all disagree with that. It's the third song on the album by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, who excel at writing big pop songs, but who falter on this smaller, more meditative tune. 
It's ostensibly a social protest, which was big in the 60s, uh, which was a rebellion against hits from the 50s, like Hope I Get Drafted by Chet Nelson and <laughs> Sonny Fuller's classic song, The Existing Racial and Class Hierarchy is Fine by Me. The song tells the story of a bank clerk, one Mr. Webster, who diligently works for 40 years, earning the bank owner untold riches, but only receiving a pittance in return. In the big reveal at the end, everyone's gathered for Mr. Webster's retirement party, where he's set to receive a watch. When they receive a telegram from Mr. Webster, letting them know that he stole all of the bank's money, presumably in a big white bag with a dollar sign on it, and he's not coming back. To the band's credit, they go minimalist here, resisting the urge to drown the track in strings or in anything that didn't need to be there. Of all people, Mickey plays electric guitar here, intertwined with Mike on pedal steel, dinky pedal steel, <laughs> while Davey keeps the beat on tambourine. It's a unique arrangement of a blah song. In terms of social conscience, Mr. Webster is miles better than Frankie and the Cruiser's catchy 1957 hit, I wanted her in bed till I found out she was a red. But as a heady 60s protest song, Mr. Webster is obvious and heavy handed. I mean, by all means, pay your workers more, but you don't have to sing about it. So I was definitely wrong about who was playing the guitar earlier. I just want our listeners to know that I am aware that I was wrong. I think this is Mickey's only appearance yeah, on anyway. guitar. <laughs> So, Rich, what do you think of the song? I guess it's probably my least favorite on the album. I, I still like it just fine. It doesn't really have much presence. Like, I didn't even realize this was a story song or even social commentary at all uh, and, until I started reading Ben's notes for this <laughs> because uh, the, the words are attached just kind of a wispy little transition of a song. You can barely even, like, make out what's going on. But uh, now that I do know the lyrics, it, it kind of strikes me as the American version of Smithers Jones which uh, by yeah. The Jam, which we talked about. Yeah, which Ben talked about in the jam episode uh, uh, but since this is an american song um instead of strolling home with a stiff upper lip and no job uh mr webster makes off with the money which i <laughs> i love that it's the sort of rugged individualism that has never once led to any problems in the united states <laughs> <laughs> it, to me this sounds like our most peculiar man by simon and garfunkel i don't know that one but with a happier ending he was a All alone within a house, within a room, within himself. A most peculiar man. I like this one a lot. The the melody is off kilter enough to be really interesting to me, and the vocal harmonies are great. And so there's there's plenty here to keep my attention, even though it's a very small song. Even before Mr. Webster steals all the money and presumably runs off to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> yeah, I really like this one, too. Um, yeah, I mean, you see the big Shyamalan-esque twist coming from a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a neat little story. And it's kind of interesting that the suits at the record company finally allowed the monkeys to reveal the radical anarcho-communist ideology that the band stood for from the beginning. <laughs> so it's pretty important in their catalog, I think, short as it is. And it's definitely a bit of, you know, dollar store Simon and Garfunkel, but I like this moody little shade to the album. Uh, 
I don't know, it's just a neat little mood piece. And in particular, I like the little hesitant piano right before the final verse where it kind of slowly oh, starts yeah. up. Yeah, me too. It's funny. It makes me think of Richard Corey, also by Simon and Garfunkel. Yes, that sort was the other. morality tale about exactly. rich people. It's like a cross between a most peculiar man and Richard Corey, who both killed themselves at the end of those songs. Well, Richard Corey <laughs> is an old an old story or poem, isn't oh, it? Oh, is it? I, I didn't yeah. know. Oh, I didn't know that either. Well, it's a, it's a long running theme. Mm-hmm. As long as capitalism exists. <laughs> so not for long. <laughs> All right. Well, nobody kills themselves in the next song with his sunny girlfriend. <laughs> Do they kill capitalism? <laughs> I hope so. Actually, she's a factory owner. <laughs> <laughs> To me, this is Mike Nesmith at his best. I absolutely love that opening line. She owns and operates her own sunshine factory and hopefully doesn't keep her workers subservient. Um, <laughs> or, they'll, or they'll steal all of her money. <laughs> all her sunshine. They'll, they'll steal her sunshine. <laughs> if it's not as sharply hooky as the best outside written pop songs, it also doesn't have the detached universal perspective you get from songs written 3,000 miles away in New York's Brill Building. Instead, Mike puts you right there, in the factory, via his irrepressible lead vocal and the band's driving, joyful, countryfied arrangement. Peter and Mike are on electric guitar, and studio bassist John London keeps a pumping, frenetic pace with Mickey's galloping drums. Sunny Girlfriend isn't the Beatles, It's also not the Archies. It's somewhere in the middle, something gritty and organic and special. Dan, do you agree? I do agree. Yeah, this is a great one. It's funny. I like Mike's songs, but have nothing to say about them. (laughs) They're just really good songs. Yeah, that's that's kind of the trouble I had running into any of Michael Nesmith's songs. Mm -hmm. So like many millennials, whenever I run into a group of four things, I map them onto the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And, uh, and, Mike, and Michael Nesmith is pretty clearly the Leonardo of the group, like the strong, silent leader. I, I would rarely listen to any of his songs on their own, uh, but he's such like a reassuring presence uh, Like when he, when he shows up. Like you're glad that he's there. This guy knows what he's doing and he has a really cool hat that just like sits just so on his head. I need a hat. <laughs> I, I am not a successful hat wearer. I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> I am. Because that's relevant information. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I agree that that opening line is completely fantastic. And I've said before on this show, I am, I put a lot of importance on a good opening line. And that just, this just makes the song. The rest of it could be just awful. And I would still love it because of that line. But good thing for me, it just continues being great the whole way through. It's not, again, not the most creative and original thing in the world, but it's just really energetic and fun. 
And the phrase sunny girlfriend is just wonderful in and of itself. This is a really good song. Oh, and while I'm at it, Mickey is the Raphael, Peter is the Michelangelo, and Davey <laughs> isn't really Donatello, but he's British, so that means he's smart. I was just <laughs> thinking that Davey would be the Donatello, which is kind of unfortunate because Donatello was my favorite. <laughs> I didn't know they had different personalities. I just thought I, I they all remember. went cowabunga and party on. <laughs> which one liked pizza? Michelangelo. <laughs> well, they all I they all, they like all pizza. Did. I think I, I think Michelangelo likes the weirdest pizza of all of them. Um, he was the <laughs> most vocal about the pizza. He was a party dude, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, come on. They have different personalities, Ben. It's in the theme song. <laughs> and he was orange. Michelangelo was orange. Donatello's purple. Leonardo's blue. And Raphael was red. <laughs> all right. Well, how much do our listeners care about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Zilch. <laughs> Zilch. Mr. Davalina, Mr. Bob Davalina, Mr. Davalina, Mr. Bob Davalina. Zilch, China Clipper calling Alameda. China Clipper calling Alameda. Zilch, China Clipper calling Alameda. Self defense. Never mind the furthermore, the police self defense. Never mind the furthermore, the police self defense. It is of my opinion that the people are intending. It is of my opinion that the people are intending. It is of my opinion that the people are intending. It is of my opinion that the people are intending. It is of my opinion that the people are. It is of my opinion that it is of my people that the timid. Never mind the furthermore, the police self defense. It is my opinion that the people are intending. It is my opinion that the people are intending. I wonder if that's what's going on in Peter's head during his nude acid trip. Zilch is half joke track and half nod towards psychedelia. It's the four monkeys reciting nonsense lines. First one of them, then two, then three, then all four. And after a while, it all deteriorates into laughter. Apparently, it was something they would do when entering a room, which if anyone else did it, I'd leave the room. But for the monkeys, I'll stick around. As for what they're saying and why, here it is straight from Wikipedia. Peter is chanting... Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, which is a name he'd overheard repeated on an airport intercom. Davy is chanting, China Clipper calling Alameda, China Clipper calling Alameda, which is a line from the 1936 film drama China Clipper. Mickey is chanting, never mind the furthermore, the plea is self-defense, which is from the 1943 Broadway musical Oklahoma. Finally, Mike is chanting, it is of my opinion that the people are intending which he'd heard in a speech by a politician, presumably one whose first language wasn't English or Sarah Palin. (laughs) Altogether, Zilch is an attempt to make the album more trippy and twisted and less a square collection of 12 pop songs. Compared to what Jimi Hendrix was doing the same year with guitar feedback and sound effects, Zilch is paper thin, but it's also clever and engaging and oozing with the monkey's natural charisma. The secret of the ooze? (laughs) if in making it they inadvertently created the hip-hop skit that they can't possibly have known (laughs) well speaking of hip-hop ben (laughs) uh, a lot of indie hip-hop fans know this one Uh, our friend del the funky homo sapien Mm. uh, who we talked about in episode four about deltron 3030 uh, he sampled it on the song mr dabalina from his 1991 debut album i wish my brother george was here mr dabalina mr bob dabalina mr dabalina mr bob dabalina 
That's so cool. Bob Dabalina. Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, want to quit? You really Although, wouldn't you call that an interpolation? I was just thinking that. I'm honestly not sure if the original sample is somewhere in there, though. Mm. That's the question of whether it's a... It sounds slowed down. Yeah. could be. Yeah, I think it might be Peter Tork. But yeah, that made this kind of the point when I went from, ooh, the monkeys are cooler than I thought, to <laughs> the monkeys are awesome (laughs) and even besides the hip-hop connection it's just such like a a left field thing to hit your brain like and and i love that they don't pull it off perfectly at all it wouldn't feel right if they actually pulled it off like especially the middle i love that i love the fact that they like restart it completely cold after michael flubs his line and then they just flub it again it's just (laughs) it's just so charmingly ramshackle yeah but really complex too it is it's just it's such a silly and wonderful little goof And we were talking about the TV show earlier. There's one episode, I think it's called The Picture Frame, where they get set up for a bank robbery and the the detective questions them and they all immediately launch into zilch at the same time. (laughs) It's very funny. And it's actually the same episode where they premiered Randy Skowskit. So even though like the episode isn't that great on the whole, it's worth watching for those two moments. You know, Ben, you mentioned Jimi Hendrix and the same year he uh, let off his album with EXP, which is actually a far stupider <laughs> sketch than this. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Mr. Paul Caruso. <laughs> Mr. Paul Caruso. Mr. Paul Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Again. I like stupid little stuff like this in records to just kind of break up the flow. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Jimi Hendrix, I forgot to to talk about this, but he actually opened for the Monkees for a while for like eight yeah. concerts before he left the tour. And it, it yeah. left people deeply confused in the audience because there's just it's two completely different shows you're getting there. And it's mm-hmm. for two different audiences. And I understand why people were confused. Yeah, I learned that on a TV movie that I watched on VH1 back in about. 1999 or 2000, which is where the majority of my information about the monkeys came from before I started <laughs> researching this episode. I saw the same movie, and that's where I learned of uh, Peter's uh, naked acid adventures, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I had actually forgotten that from the movie. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so glad that I brought up his nude acid adventures for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's extremely relevant. I guess he was like songs. the Dennis Wilson yeah. of the group. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. He stayed away from the Manson family, at least. <laughs> he had no time for the Manson family. <laughs> Ooh, I see where you're going. Track 12 is no time. No time for you. On my way to <laughs> Damn it. You never play a much better song as a goof. <laughs> <laughs> that one was mine. <laughs> Also, ugh, Canadians. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I did think of this song, but I had the kind of the same logic as Dan. Like, hmm, No Time by the Guess Who is a really good song. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take the monkey song a million times, but. Well, here's the pretty good monkey song. What is that first line? Something about snacks? Oh, it's total gibberish. <laughs> I got no time, baby, got lots of better things to do. No time, no time at all. Burning from the rising heat to find a place to hide. The grass is always greener growing on the other side. No time, no time, no time, no time for you. No time, no time I got no time, baby, got lots of better things to do. No time, no time. 
No Time was a studio jam, just the band goofing around playing 50s rock cliches while Mickey Dolenz shouted nonsense lyrics on top. Along the way, they rip off a lot of songs, Boys by the Beatles, Long Tall Sally by Little Richard, probably a few more that I just can't catch at the moment. The band's energy and good cheer here are infectious. Listen to Peter pounding away on piano. Listen to Davey just shredding on tambourine and wailing away on backing vocals. He's Shredding not... on tambourine. <laughs> He's a real <laughs> for that tambourine. <laughs> He's not a natural musical talent, but he's in this 100%, and it's hard not getting swept away by it. Finally, listen to Mickey preach on top of it all. His vocals suffused with humor and balls-out energy. He really was one of the all-time great singers. No time is not creative in the least. No new ideas were harmed in the making of this song. But it's a fucking blast. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and this was another one that bugged me for a long time because I kept thinking, okay, the intro is obviously Long Tall Sally, but it's also something else. What is it? And I finally realized Creedence Clearwater Revival lifted it later on for Traveling Band. Ah. Yeah. 737 coming out of the sky. Oh, won't you take me down to Memphis on a And I never caught that, but that is absolutely right. The same thing. I also hear Honey Don't in here, and not just mm. when Mickey says Rock on George for Ringo <laughs> one time, which is really funny. <laughs> and probably, like Ben said, half a dozen other rockabilly classics in there. But who cares if this is the least original thing ever recorded? It's extremely <laughs> fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah, it, it's something hearing Mickey channeling McCartney, channeling Little Richard. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun, despite being perhaps the most generic rock and roll concoction ever written. You know, with this being their first album where they're actually playing instruments, it's cool just to hear them play. So they're just having fun here, which I can enjoy. Yeah, that's how I take it, too. It's just kind of a song where you're supposed to just listen to the monkeys having fun rather than, like, revel in their originality. Uh, Though uh, the the song quotes Zilch in it. Like, uh, toward the end of the song, Mickey sings, never mind the furthermore, the plea is self-defense. Oh, I never caught that. It's funny. Yeah, it's really awesome. Conceptual continuity. (laughs) And the the Andy, you're a dandy line is about Andy Warhol. Hmm. How hip of them. Accurate. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we've mined every scrap of meaning out of no time. So track 13 is early morning blues and greens. Sunshine came softly through yeah. <laughs> the window. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and I that hadn't caught distant that. Distant night bird mocks the sun. This is their fancy bass player, too. <laughs> I wake as I have always done Two freshly scented sycamore And cold bare feet on hardwood floor My steaming coffee warms my face The penultimate song on Headquarters is one of the lesser songs on here. By the way, if you don't know what penultimate means, it hey, why do you all look like you want to punch me in the face? <laughs> no, I'm with you. It means second to last, not higher than the highest. <laughs> People get it wrong all the time. It drives me crazy. <laughs> The song was written by Diane Hildebrand and Jack Keller, and while I'm sure they were just wonderful people, they did not give the band much to work with here. 
the band went for a serious air, which was a noble instinct. And, you know, times were serious back then, what with politics and all. But there's zero humor here and worse, zero energy. There isn't even a chorus to hang your brain on. Outside of two ripping organ solos by Peter, who played with a seemingly bottomless bag of tricks on this album, this is a tasteful, even admirable effort that unfortunately falls flat. Yeah, aside from it being Sunshine Superman, I like the instrumental arrangement of this a lot, actually, especially whatever's making that banging noise later on. I have no idea what Mm -hmm. it is, but it's very cool. The vocal take is just nothing to write home about. I don't think Davey performs it well. And admittedly, I'm just not his biggest fan to begin with. And those lines about the coffee, that'd be hard for anybody to sell. (laughs) Yeah, the monkeys are good at evoking themes that our British friends covered on other episodes. Like we had the jam in Smithers Jones uh, and this one with the coffee in the morning. It kind of reminds me of Shangri-La by the Kinks, like this meditation about the peace of, you know, hanging around in your house until you die. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's nice and nice and reassuring. I always forget how this song goes. Like I see in the track list and go, what is that one again? And whenever I hear it, it's more interesting than I, than I remember it being. But it's still kind of just, you know, there. It's eh. Yeah, it doesn't go. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. All right. Well, you know what does go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Track 14, Randy Scouse get. Alternate title. She's a wonderful lady and she's mine, all mine. And there doesn't seem a way that she won't come and lose my mind. It's too easy humming songs to a girl in yellow dress. It's been a long time since the party and the room is in a mess. The four kings of EMI are sitting stately on the floor. There are birds out on the Walk and a ballet at the door He reminds me of a penguin With few and plaster hair There's talcum powder on the letter And the birthday boy is there Why don't you cut your hair? Why don't you live up there? Why don't you do what I do? See what I feel when I care? Now they've darkened all the windows And the seats <laughs> Making fun of British people. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Scouse Git is the only Mickey Dolan's original of note, not just on this album, but pretty much ever. The title Randy Scouse Git has nothing to do with the song itself. It's Liverpool slang that roughly translates to horny jerk from Liverpool. It was enough to get the song's name changed in England to alternate title, as Dan pointed out before, apparently since accurately describing the population of Liverpool was a bootable offense. The song opens with Mickey pounding a timpani, a booming noise that goes away and then shows up again later on. Peter plays a dignified, bouncy music hall piano line that accentuates Mickey's dignified, bouncy melody and elusive, genteel lyrics. Then suddenly, coming from outer space, crashes the song's meteor of a chorus, during which Mickey screams a cracked mirror reflection of the hippie ideal, exhorting the listener to kill people in order to be free. Two years before, lifestyle influencer Charles Manson made that seem cool and exciting. Then it's back to quiet and dignified. Then Mickey scat sings for a few bars. Then another meteor hits. Then it's all happening at once. And it's hard to tell what's going on in the very best way. 
If you're only going to write one song, you might as well make it three songs jammed together in a way that's as bewildering and fun as this one is. Much like Paul McCartney often did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the title of the song apparently comes from, uh, well, Mickey, Mickey, I keep wanting to say Mickey Rourke. Uh, <laughs> Mickey Dolan's apparently like uh, the, like got it from the UK sitcom Till Death Do Us Part, which is the sitcom that inspired All in the Family. Uh, it's the thing, and Randy Scouse Git is the thing that the patriarch calls his son-in-law, the same way that Rob Reiner get, got called Meathead. <laughs> yeah. Randy Scouse Git is way better than Meathead as an insult, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Dan, how about you? I can't believe Mickey wrote this. Like, it is just such a a unique construction. Like, it is so great. Like, yeah, it is one of the best monkey songs. It's just so like the way it builds the timpanies and just the the big explosion, and even the scat singing. It's just it's all just it's great. Like, oh yeah, he's uh, so crazy. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> just a really inspired performance. Oh yeah, and the fact that he never did this again. Like, it's wild, right? I mean, he wrote songs here and there, but nothing like this. He he had just this one in him. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite monkey song. Awesome. It's a good pick. It's on that Greatest Hits collection that I bought uh, when I was a teenager, and it blew me away the first time I heard it, because I knew the monkeys from stuff like Daydream Believer and Last Train to Clarksville. At that point, I hadn't even heard your Auntie Griselda, so I had no idea anything like this was coming. And I thought it, you know, at the very beginning, it kind of sounds like a typical monkey song. And then he just loses his mind. (laughs) (laughs) It it just the song just gets better and better as it goes on, as Ben described. And my favorite detail is at the very end when Peter Tork just sits down on the organ keys for a while (laughs) and makes the whole thing sound extra sinister. The whole song (laughs) freaking rules. And it's what made me discover that I really love it when the monkeys decide to get kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the story behind the song is pretty fun, too. The Beatles threw a party for the monkeys when they were in England. The Beatles are the four kings of VMI. Mm. And apparently it was a very strange party. And the girl in yellow dress is Cass Elliot. Oh. Hmm. What did Mom's Peter Tork do at the party? <laughs> <laughs> Coming through. That's probably why it was weird. <laughs> And interestingly, Mickey Dolenz re-recorded this in 2013 on a covers album called Remember, and it's different. Four kings of EMI sitting stately on the floor. Oh, I didn't realize he died. That <laughs> hmm? oh, just, just sounds very... reminds me of a penguin with you and blasted hair. Talking powder and the letter and the birthday poison. These are not lyrics meant to be sung this way. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughtfully sung. It's like William Shatner reciting a song. (laughs) Why don't you cut your hair? Why don't you live up there? 
entitled to do this. Yeah, it's his own song. I mean, it's a bold choice taking your best song and making it not good anymore. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like how like Randy Scouse Get would sound on the final cut by Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, that's really good. Yeah, that whole album is kind of strange, but the first track on it is a cover of the Beatles' Good Morning, Good Morning, and it is very, very good. So, yeah, it's 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 a choice. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I remember you played you played that earlier on the Slack channel. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that even uh, even changing the title to alternate title, it still managed to hit like number two on the charts over there. <laughs> I, oh. I guess I guess it connected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess somebody told them you're going to have to give this an alternate title It's not going to fly in England. And they said, OK, alternate title it is <laughs> punk rock. <Yeah. laughs> OK, we have. Talked about all the monkey songs on this album. Ben, what are your final thoughts on it? The monkeys fought so hard for artistic independence. In doing so, they blew open the doors for other fake bands to be able to write their own songs and play their own instruments. That legacy will live on forever in a way that dwarfs every other moral crusade of the 1960s. So many fake bands owe them a debt of gratitude, from Josie and the Pussycats to Alvin and the Chipmunks to the Banana Splits to the Zack Attack and to bad company. Hot Sunday. Unfortunately, when yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, when the monkeys gained artistic independence, they also learned that it involves a lot of work and that sometimes it's easier to let other people write your songs and play your instruments for you. Their next two albums, while great, feature steadily decreasing appearances from band members in the songwriting and instrumental credits. Mickey Dolenz left his drum kit so quickly that you could still hear his stool rattling back and forth on their next album. And if he ever wrote another song, I don't know about it. Peter Tork remained an integral part of the Monkees' sound for one more album, and then he faded away and eventually left the band to pursue doing nothing as a solo artist instead of as part of the group. Davy Jones kept singing with gusto and even writing the occasional song, but not in a way that could carry the band. Inspiringly, Mike Nesmith kept going, pursuing his love of country music and branching out into psychedelia. After a few albums, he left the band, and he kept up a reasonably successful solo career for quite some time. So, the experiment worked gloriously for one album, maybe two, and then it fizzled, and nobody's to blame except the band members themselves. So it's worth asking, how much does headquarters really matter to the Monkees' legacy? If you look at the monkey songs that took over the world and that are still in rotation decades later, which are fantastic pop songs, the monkeys didn't write them and they mostly didn't play on them. And usually it's just one or two of them singing. Meanwhile, none of the songs from headquarters are played on the radio these days. Yes, headquarters was a number one album, but you could argue that after the band's initial success, anything they recorded after that would have sold a decent amount. So you could argue that Headquarters is not why the Monkees mattered or why their music has endured, but it's a fascinating detour <clears throat> from the story. And to me, at least, the music holds up. Listening to it just makes me happy. The Monkees had every financial incentive to keep putting in as little effort as possible, and they risked it all because they had something to say, as they themselves related in their classic song, Last Train to Clarksville. What they had to say wasn't brilliant or visionary, but it was brimming over with talent and musical creativity and infectious good cheer. And 50 years later, it's still worth hearing. Sorry, Ben, did you do that on purpose? Because uh, yes. we've got something to say as yes. in 
Okay, thank you. <laughs> it was hard to tell. <laughs> that bone dry humor. <laughs> yeah. All right. Do either of you guys have any wrap up thoughts? The monkeys weren't about music. They were about rebellion, about political and social upheaval. <laughs> I was hoping that would come up. <laughs> that was from The Simpsons. I don't. I don't actually have any closing thoughts besides the monkeys are good. <laughs> okay, the monkeys are good. And if you need further evidence that the monkeys are good, Ben, what else should people listen to? So there's so much great monkeys music out there. We've touched on a lot of it. If you like colorful 60s pop music, which is just one of the best kinds of music, you can't go wrong with their first several albums. For my recommendation, I'm going to go really obvious. By 1968, the monkeys had split into four disparate factions, three of those factions making interesting music, but rarely showing up for the other faction sessions. In the Peter Tork faction, mostly napping. Their fourth album, The Birds, The Bees, and The Monkeys, is fascinating, but it might as well have been made by three different bands. But for one song on that album, they came together and made something special. Daydream Believer spotlights both sides of the monkeys. It's written by an outside songwriter, John Stewart, not that one, <laughs> and it features no less than 13 session musicians who aren't monkeys. But right there in the thick of all of them are our four heroes, Mike playing guitar, Mickey harmonizing, Peter playing the song's indelible piano line, and Davey singing the almost impossibly charming lead vocal. Put all together, it's a perfect pop song and a great pop record. It's as catchy as their early hits and as creative as their middle period records. It's memorable and lovable in equal amounts. But it's rain and I rise Wipe the sleep out of my eyes My shaven razor's cold and it stings Cheer up, sleepy Jean Oh, what can it mean to a daydream believer And a homegoing queen Yeah, yeah I can't argue with Daydream Believer. That's a that's a Davy vocal that even I really like. <laughs> the man's dead, Amanda. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go slightly more obscure for my recommendation. In 2016, the monkeys reunited, which is not a thing that really would have been advisable, you would think. But the album they turned out is called Good Times, and it's just way better than it has any right to be. It's not perfect. I'm not sure if it's even great, but it, it's definitely good. Mm -hmm. And in the context of a mostly washed up band from the 60s that wasn't <laughs> even real to begin with, it's amazing. Uh, there's one song on there that I just cannot shut up about mm -hmm. in our Slack channel. You guys are probably really sick of me talking about it. It's called Me and Magdalena. That's just, it's one of those songs that is so pretty. It makes me a little bit weepy. Yeah, it's a great song. You get two versions on the uh, special. Yeah, uh, the and they're both version. really good. Yeah.
that whole album is like, like you said, way better than it has any right to be. And it is surprisingly good. Mm-hmm. And it was produced by Adam Schlesinger. We talked about yeah. it. Uh, we talked about it a little bit in our uh, tribute to him er- earlier this spring. And yeah. yeah, he does a really just amazing job. Like in terms of production, it's not too glossy. Like uh, the, the the songs, uh, the songs have a nice variety and just uh, it's a lot better than like, yeah, Monkey's reunion album in 2016 has any right to be. Mm-hmm. So my favorite Monkey's album is actually Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn and Jones Limited. But to be interesting, I'm going to actually recommend their movie, which is titled Head. So in 1968, the Monkees TV show was canceled. So the TV show's creator, Bob Rafelson, I think it's how you say his name, uh, teamed up with a pre-fame Jack Nicholson to write a movie for the Monkees. And it was a complete failure. It was kind of (laughs) seen as the final nail in the coffin for the band. But over the decades, it has rightly become a cult classic. And it's, you know, it's basically just a collection of like comic vignettes and musical performances. Uh, But it is considerably darker, weirder and druggier than the TV show ever was. And it's got some of, I think, the best songs they ever did. Most notably the Porpoise song, which is, I think, a masterpiece. Yeah. Porpoise song is fantastic. seen the movie i listened to the record for the first time yesterday and porpoise song i already knew because it was also on that greatest hits album but the whole thing is really good yeah, yeah the record's kind of weird because it is like six songs with movie dialogue mm-hmm. filling out the rest of the album so it's a weird thing to recommend to people but i think it's a lot of fun to listen to yeah and a couple of really silly little chants about how we're manufactured yeah. and <laughs> we we hope you like our story even though there isn't one <laughs> yeah the movie is very self-aware yeah. And I'm going to recommend their 1996 album, Justice. No, no. There aren't that, <laughs> there aren't that many Monkees albums. Just listen to the 60s ones in good times. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, Justice, just to, just to throw it in, they, they reunited in the 90s, and they actually did. They, they even one-upped headquarters. They actually did write all the songs themselves and play every note of it themselves. They produced it themselves. It's a great idea that can only be ruined by listening to it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a night. But now I won't forget you. But my heart won't let you. Out of my life. And was that the one where there was only actually two of them on it? Or was that No, it's all of them. 
Yeah, they actually got yeah, a mic for that All one. four are on Justice. Mm-hmm. Three are on Pool It. Oh, and wow. Mike's not on Pool It. And Mike is also the only monkey who does not appear in the Brady Bunch movie. <laughs> Damn shame. <laughs> He's kind of a crank. I think that was how I learned uh, at least three of the monkeys' names. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> was that scene. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Well, I think that about does it for the monkeys. That was really fun. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it yeah. as much as we enjoyed recording it. Yeah. <sighs> that was really cheesy, but I meant it. <laughs> she did. It's true, I did. All right, next up, it's my turn again. I decided it's time for some badass ladies around here, so I'm going to be talking about L. King and her debut album, Love Stuff. Awesome. All right. I had never heard of this album before you scheduled it, Amanda. <laughs> but now you love it, right? It's really good, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to hear it. Roll credits. Passiamo noi e la gente ci guarda ed amico un po' ci chiamano i monkeys siamo membri di chi Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Headquarters and other albums by the Monkees at your local record store or at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. At monkeys.com, you can get a few of their other albums, but not this one for some reason. We have also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com, and you can follow Discord and Rhyme at discordpod on Twitter for news and updates and on Instagram for pictures of our pets. Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and other original music. We will see you next album, and be ever wonderful. Monkeys, check out the monkeys.